Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for tuning into The Animal Files, the podcast where we expose the truth, science, and spirituality of pet care and provide you with the wisdom and tools you need to raise happy and healthy companion animals. My name is Victoria, an animal spirituality facilitator and integrative energy practitioner. And my name is Miranda, an animal health technologist and pet care safety expert. Let's dive in, shall we? Welcome to the Animal Files. How you all doing today? Last we talked about animal care and control facilities. All the history involved with that, what they're doing, how they're shifting to practices that are more beneficial to the animals. And today we are going to bring in shelters, rescues, and humane societies the noble saviors of this planet. (laughs) So let's really break down what they do because they have such an essential role and we should all be grateful for the work that they do. Let's start with some history about rescue shelters and humane societies and all the good stuff that helps protect our animals. (laughs) Rescues and shelters in North America have actually been around for more than 150 years. That still blows my mind. (laughs) A long time. But of course, the biggest shifts have happened in probably the last 20 years, Mm. I would say. And the shelters and the rescues that we are most familiar with have evolved mostly in the last 30 years. Okay. And there's constantly... There's just this continual shift as people gain more understanding about animals and the care that they need, the understanding of who and what they are, and learning how to provide the best care and love and all of that that we can to these animals. It's like over the last several years, we've realized that these creatures have personalities they have minds of their own and i think way back when they just didn't think that was a thing Mm -hmm. and we're spending so much more time with animals between going to zoos that are all about conservation and the people that are spending really close proximity to animals even the wildlife rescues they live and breathe with these animals are trying to protect Mm -hmm. we are learning so much more about how much more they are. Yes. It's incredible. I'm so happy. I like seeing that en masse. I think there's also been an increase in willingness and open-mindedness to view animals or to view non-human animals Mm -hmm. in a different way than how we used to. Yeah. And one of the first societies that came about was the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And that actually was developed back in 1866. Wow. So there were already people back in those days that were already starting to see that animals were not just for our benefit and that they could feel pain, they could feel stress. They probably didn't fully understand at that time, but I think they were starting to see that to some extent. Yeah, glad for it. Yeah. (laughs) And then shortly after that, we mentioned this in our last show that the first shelter that was established in Philadelphia was in 1869 by the lady Carolyn Earl White. 
and some other female activists. We mentioned that shelters originally focused more on horses because of people being more concerned with the welfare of transportation animals, not companion animals at that time. Makes sense. They were using them for everything. Yeah. Now, adoptions is a fairly new thing. It actually started developing in the later part of the 19th century, but it still wasn't a really huge thing at that time. I wonder if it was mostly based on horses at that time. I don't know if they did adoptions for horses or I don't know what was evolved around that, but I don't think there was a big push for it. There was still probably a lot more animals who were bought. And I don't know if breeders really were a big thing back then as much either. I mean, breeding has been around for a long time, obviously, because we've had some of these breeds for quite a long period of time. Yeah. But to the extent that it is now, it might have been on a lot smaller scale back at that time. You know, it could be that still a lot of people had quote unquote mongrels, but it may not have been like an adopting selling kind of thing. It might be they just acquired them somehow. Yeah. And then around the time that humane treatment of humans began, that was also the beginning of the humane treatment of animals. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, some people started to make the correlation that, oh, well, if humans should be treated a certain way, then non-human animals should be treated similarly. And then around 60% of American homes had a pet in 1974. And pampering was actually starting to become a thing at that time. (laughs) 60%. That's like percentage that I can't even fathom because now isn't it something like 80 or 90% of people have at least one pet or something like that yeah it's it's not strange but like incredible like that well yeah it's definitely um increased quite a bit but still back at that time 60 percent was probably a pretty high percentage yeah i would think so 1974 i mean i was born in 1970 and we always had an animal so the fact that only 60 percent of people around that time that just boggles my mind (laughs) I was born into a house with a cat, so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is something that we're always encouraging, but spaying and neutering became a much more common procedure to be done in the 1970s, together with educating and promoting adoptions over buying. So there was getting to be more and more of a shift back at that time, which would have been, what, 50 years ago? something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a seventies kid. So (laughs) yeah. So there's a little bit of a difference between a humane society or another name for them is the SPCA compared to shelters and rescue societies. A humane society is generally an organization that is dedicated to improve animal welfare. So they may operate a shelter and adoption program. I think some of them are more online than they are a physical location. But the big thing that they really do is that they provide animal education and they are often mandated to enforce provincial and federal animal cruelty laws. We like the Humane Society. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do we know when the Humane Society was founded? 
I would be willing to guess that it was close to the same time. It does say that humane societies and SPCAs are basically the same thing. So probably the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals back in 1866, I believe I said, mm-hmm. was probably essentially the first humane society. So now we're going to go into information about shelters, how they started to develop and what they generally encompass in their operations. So the term shelter was coined in the mid-1980s because animal welfare folks were starting to realize that there was no reason to be killing 90% of the animals entering the shelters. Yeah. (laughs) I'd kind of be on that bandwagon, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So shelters can be privately owned, but they can also be operated by the government. They started to allow adoptions and some fostering. And they started providing the spaying and neutering services. That was based less on uh, an option choice that was being provided, but more out of necessity because they were seeing the population was just exploding and needed to have more control over it so that we didn't have all of these cats and dogs roaming around, being feral, not being able to get the care that they needed or find the homes that they needed. Yeah, because they can populate very quickly. Oh, yeah. I found some information today, which we'll share with you in an upcoming episode. But one single cat can have potentially up to 60 kittens in a year. One cat having 60? Yes. In seven years, one cat and their descendants, if none of them get fixed, can create 5 million cats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that holds up. <laughs> <laughs> get your animals spayed and neutered. Unless there's a medical issue. Yeah. <laughs> get them <Yes>. spayed and neutered. <laughs> so shelters are focused on taking in abused, surrendered, or abandoned animals, as well as strays, and they may take more than just pets, depending on the jurisdiction. So some of them will deal with wild animals that may have some kind of an injury or were orphaned or something like that. I would assume those would be far and few between because you need certain permits, I believe. Right. And then most veterinary professionals deal with companion animals. So they need to be trained specifically for wild animals. Yes. You can't just bring a groundhog that you found injured to your shelter and Mm -hmm. expect them to take it because you may have to find one specifically that does wildlife. Yes. And I'm not aware of any areas that do that. I know where I'm located, we have a nonprofit organization that is exclusive for wildlife to help take care of those situations. I think a lot of municipalities do. Yeah. Shelters will also end up euthanizing in their facility, but it's not something they choose to do. It's not something they want to do. It depends on how they choose to operate. Some of them will choose to try to make room in their facility for new animals that might be coming in. And then others will choose not to euthanize, but then they end up having to turn animals away. It's a double-edged sword. Exactly. Of course, if they turn animals away, then these animals end up having to fend for themselves if somebody's not willing to take them into their home and care for them. Yeah, that's why foster families are incredibly important. So if you have a heart 
of gold and you love animals, but you don't want to take full-time responsibility, fostering is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. It's a needed service. Yes, it is. But I don't think that shelters typically work with fosters. I think that's more with the rescues. Okay. Now, when it comes to adopting animals in the shelters, the processing time for adoptions may be shorter and have fewer requirements as compared to adopting from an animal rescue. And that might be because they're they're wanting to try to get the animals into a home as quickly as they can. So maybe they're not doing as much into looking into the background of the potential adoptees. Which could also be a double-edged sword. Yes. Sure, the animal has a home, but is it safe? Right. And sometimes they end up having animals being brought back to them that had been adopted because it ended up not being a good fit. However, shelters can provide an easier way to interact with a future pet since they may provide a mating area or a playroom for you to meet and be acquainted with the animal you like. And some of them will, probably a lot of them will allow you to bring any animals that you currently have in your home with you if they have an enclosed area like this to see how the animal you currently have interacts on both sides, how they interact with each other to see whether or not this is going to work out in your home. That's interesting. I kind of like that idea. Yeah, our animals are our family and you're bringing the family together to see if it works. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, shelters can have different square footage and they don't always necessarily have these additional rooms for the things that would be more on the ideal side. Yeah, so it probably depends on the municipality, how many donations they have, Mm -hmm. what types of subsidies they would get from the municipality Mm -hmm. to allow for a larger building. Right. Now, most shelters have a veterinarian team on site because they want to ensure that these animals are getting the care that they need. So if they get sick or if they get an infection or an injury or they come in with an infection or injury, they want to help these animals get healthy again. You know, and I think age can sometimes be a bearing because if they're senior animals, they may decide that it's better to euthanize them rather than try to treat them because they have the idea that, oh, they're older, so they're not going to get adopted. Which is sad. And if you want an animal that has less work involved, Mm -hmm. a senior animal is a good animal to adopt. And it is, I mean, sounds kind of sad or morbid or maybe a little bit, but it is a shorter term commitment. Yes, it is. It could be more expensive one, but these animals deserve the respect Mm -hmm. and they should not be left in these facilities just because they're old. Mm -hmm. They still have love to give up until their very last day. I've read a couple of stories that there's been a couple of senior animals who some kind hearted soul decided to adopt them and give them a loving place to live out their last days, weeks, years, whatever it might be. And they ended up thriving. I love that. I love that. And anybody who does that, bless you, bless you. These animals just deserve so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's heartbreaking when you read these stories of these animals that have basically been abandoned by humans, just in a general sense. And although they might be provided with the care of, you know, getting food and water and walks and bedding, 
they're still getting very limited attention, very little human contact. And they're in this stressful environment because you can't relax and be in a good place when you are in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking to, to see animals like that. Yeah. If you can do it, adopt a senior animal. They need your love. If you have the capacity, you have a duty, I think. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> if I had the space and the money, I would probably do that mm -hmm. just to give these, because I've dealt with a lot of death and ill animals and aging animals. And I think I have the capacity to do so. Mm -hmm. Currently in my situation, I don't have the facility or the space to do so. But mm -hmm. yeah, that is something that I, that I, I've thought about several times. I'm like, that would be a nice thing to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> right. I'd like to definitely consider fostering in the future. So yeah, these animals, they just, they give us so much and just giving back to them is just, it's a noble act. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we can take responsibility as humans and prevent all these litters from happening so that these animals have more of an ability to find a good loving home for them, then we wouldn't necessarily have to hear about or see these stories of these animals languishing yeah. in these shelters. And sometimes these shelters are so packed that they have limited space. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be living in a three by six cage their whole life. Yeah. You know, that's not fair. No. So, you know, I like anything else, not all shelters are equal. Not all animal care and control facilities are equal and not all rescues are equal. Yeah. The majority of them are operating in the best interests of the animals. And most shelters will try to understand questions such as how many animals are coming into the shelter generally, weekly, monthly, yearly, and seasonally. Yeah. Keeping a track of all that so they know when they need to up their fosters up there this, up there that, up there adoptions, pushes mm -hmm. and, and all that. And also space. I mean, mm -hmm. the kennels that they use, they can be adjusted and shifted and made smaller and bigger as they go. So having that information is really important. Mm -hmm. And maybe they might also use that for educational purposes as well to help the public to understand what's going on. Oh, yeah. Along with that, they try to find out well, what types of animals are coming in. Is it mostly cats, mostly dogs, mostly rabbits? As we said, they can potentially take in a variety of animals and it could be pocket pets. It could be reptiles. And when I say pocket pets, I'm talking about gerbils and hamsters and mice and things like that. Just think of them that they can fit in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a hamster that I carried in my pocket all the time. He loved it. We just walk around the house. You'd be sitting in my pocket. <laughs> he was a little dwarf hamster and you just, you just love being in the pocket. Oh yeah. Well, they like their little dens too. So yeah, I know. I think that's why they like the little pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there can also, well, I don't think shelters typically focus on one specific type of animal. I think they usually encompass a variety of types of animals. Mm -hmm. They also want to find out, well, what are the reasons that they are being brought to the shelter? Mm, that's really good information because then you know, community wise, what you need to focus on to help solve that problem or yeah. solve that reason. The only thing is, is when it comes to surrenders, the information may not be completely accurate because some people who surrender don't want to be honest. No, because if, you, if you're willing to surrender an animal, 
you're right there. You're being selfish. I'm sorry. My opinion. But yeah, if you're just surrendering it for, I don't know. I can't imagine not adjusting my life to fit my animal. Hmm. Like that, that thought is first and foremost in my mind. Hmm. People who surrender their animals, unless it's an animal that the owner has passed away. I, I honestly, I'm just going to be flat out bold. If you're surrendering your animal, I just don't think you have a good reason. I I don't. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there's probably something that I'm not thinking about right now, but the majority of people who surrender their animals is typically relocating. I mean, if you're moving out of the country and you can't bring your animal, I get that because they have to be quarantined for a certain amount of time or whatever. But if you're not moving out of the country, the list of good excuses is so minuscule in my brain that it's, I just don't think there's a reason. (laughs) I just don't. It's so selfish and so rude to the animal. I think that so many of the reasons that end up coming up as a result of surrendering is due to not doing enough research, not understanding what the costs involved were, not understanding what the needs of an animal are, not understanding the different characteristics, like how big they could get or what kind of activity level they might need, all of these different things. If you do your due diligence and try to find that information out beforehand, before you make the choice to get an animal, then there should be very little reason to surrender. Yeah. Do your research. Don't just bring an animal because it's cute and fuzzy. Bring an animal that's going to fit your family, fit Mm -hmm. your lifestyle that you are prepared to take care of. If you get an animal and you have no desire to take them to a vet, you shouldn't have an animal Mm -hmm. because veterinary care is essential for any animal you bring into your home. And if you have no desire to spend the money to make sure your animal is healthy, don't get an animal. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm getting off my box. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I said before, it's a two way street. It's not just about what the animal can do for you, how it can make you feel more calm or relaxed or happy or whatever. It's also about how are you going to provide that care to the animal? Yeah. What are you going to give to them? Mm -hmm. And I guess, and it's again, not just the physical care. It's also, how are you going to keep them safe? How are you going to help minimize their stress levels? How are you going to respect them and try to have a good relationship with them? Understanding. All of that stuff. Agreed. The last question that shelters try to understand is what happened to these animals that are being brought in? If they were abused, if they were abandoned, if they were feral, if they were stray. I don't know if they bring the ferals in as much, but strays. And I guess just trying to understand what led up to their situation and that. So I'm not sure exactly what all that question encompasses exactly, but. Well, it probably helps them figure out where, like if law enforcement needs to be involved. Right. If there is a medical issue, like if they're getting a lot of dogs for some reason that are coming in exposed to rabies, they know that, uh uh-oh we got a problem and they need to make sure they reach out to the correct people who can complete 
that research of, okay, why are all these animals coming down sick? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's more of a data collection. So they know what to do to help prevent anything in the future. Right. So whether it's law enforcement, whether it's a medical issue, whether it's a, you know, a community or an environmental issue, you know, if they're coming up with a bunch of dogs that they're finding stray dogs or stray cats that are coming in with leptospirosis or something like that you know, some type of an environmental toxin, Mm -hmm. then they can do what they need to do to make sure that it doesn't happen in the future. Right. Or if maybe if there's a whole bunch of them that are showing similar injuries or something going on with their body or something like that too, then they can launch an investigation. Yeah. Like somebody is abusing these stray animals just to abuse the stray animals. Right. Yeah. I think that's probably the most important information they can get is what happened to these animals. Mm -hmm. You imagine them sometimes being, oh, sure. We just take everything. But no, there's a lot goes on behind the scenes. It's not just taking in and adopting out animals. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into it because a lot of times they work, like you said, with the governments Mm -hmm. or their government run, and they need to do what they can to ensure that the community is safe. Yeah. And I mean, they do a lot of outreach to, they get involved with a lot of different events as well to help people learn about how they operate and what they're trying to do as well. Yeah. And you know what, if you are in a community and you know, there's a rescue somewhere in the region, I don't know, learn about them. Mm -hmm. If there's a a town fair or something like that, and they have a booth, learn about them Mm -hmm. because they need our community support. They're doing good work. And they may be different from rescues. And we're going to get into rescues in the next half, but they are doing good work. Mm-hmm. They need community support, mm-hmm. whether it's financial, whether it's just advocacy, whether it's volunteer, whether it's, you know, there's so many ways you can support an animal shelter and a rescue in your area. So learn about them mm-hmm. and uh, you'll be able to work with them and understand how the whole process works. I don't know. I think it's a good idea. (laughs) All right. So that is an awful lot about shelters. We're going to go into rescues in the second half, and we're going to figure out what makes them different. Full transparency? I didn't know there was a big difference, so I'm learning (laughs) here too. So come right back, and we will see you in a bit. We hope you've been enjoying our show. Our listeners are very important to us, and we want to not only give animals a voice, but we want to give you a voice as well. So Miranda and I have created a community on Facebook to help us do just that. We would love for you to join us and let us know what questions and topics you'd like to know more about and what you feel is important to you and your animal. So pop on over to Facebook and search for the Animal Files community. You can join in the conversation so we can all give animals a voice. And we are back. Thanks for sticking with us. You're listening to the Animal Files. Last half, we talked about shelters and gave you a little bit of history lesson on them too. (laughs) Now we're going to go into what makes rescues different from shelters. And if you haven't already taken out your notebooks, bring them out. Because these guys need your support just as much as the shelters. Let's start talking about rescues. So we said that the shelters could be privately owned or operated by the government. But there's usually some kind of funding involved 
to operate those facilities. Rescues, on the other hand, are usually operated by a private citizen or a small organization in order to help the animals that are hurting. They generally operate solely on donation and the goodwill of volunteers. They really need our support. Yes. (laughs) So as a result of that, they usually have less administrative manpower, which means that if you are going to call them or email them, you may end up having to wait longer for a response because they don't have the manpower or the necessary time to get back to you in, let's say, 24 hours. A lot of these people probably have day jobs. Yeah. So patience is really key if you want to work with a rescue. Keep in mind that they're not just ignoring you, that they're not just being irresponsible. They just have a lot on their plate. Yes. And because they're just a small location, you know, usually operating out of their own home, they don't have the ability to house animals. So this is where the fosters really come into play, the foster families, because they need people who can bring the animals into their homes and care for them until they can find their forever home. And we, we want them to find their forever home, not their temporary home. Mm-hmm. But these rescues, they want to help the abused, abandoned, and stray animals. And some of them will also work with animals that have special needs. Yeah. And I think if I'm correct, the rescues are the ones that do most of the community TNRs, the trap and release. Uh, You could be right about that. Yeah. Because we have a lot of cats around our area and I have worked with a small rescue and they specifically had partnered with a, a vet in the area and they would trap the stray cats. They would spay and neuter them. They'd get a little clip on their ear. And then they'd put them back outside Mm. because they're not in distress. Right. You know, they're happily living in a colony, whatever. But the trap and release program keeps the population controlled. Right. At least in my area, the smaller rescues are the ones that advocate for the trap and release. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the shelters in my area do that. They may, but I know locally it's the smaller rescues that take control of that. Yeah. And I don't know if the different rescues operate differently with feral cats and how they specifically determine if a cat is a stray or a feral cat. Probably the same with, you know, making sure there's no chick collars. If they look rat, I mean, a lot of my stray cats, you can tell they're not being taken care of. Mm. So they definitely live outside all the time. Mm. So they probably have ways of knowing that. And I know when I was working with the rescue here in my area, she lived really close to my house, the lady I was working with. So she was familiar with the cats in the area. Mm. She kind of knew. So I think that's why the smaller rescues focus on the TNR. They're in the community. They know. Right. They're out and about. They drive the roads and they pay attention. Mm -hmm. So it's on a, it's more of a micro scale. Mm -hmm. And that's probably how how they know. Yeah. Well, I know a number of years ago, maybe around 15 years ago or 12 years ago or something, I can't remember. I volunteered briefly with a rescue and there was a cat that this lady was trying to catch in this area. And I went out to try to help and brought one of the trap and release cages out there. And when we did finally capture her, she was She was not at all friendly. Like she did not want to be near a person. I don't know if it was just fear or if 
if it was more than that, but. Or she was just a, a legit feral cat. Right. But I had brought her into my home and essentially like fostered her for a couple of weeks or something like that. And they ended up finding a home for her and she ended up warming up to these people. Oh, nice. Quite a bit. And I think not all ferals will also stay feral. Some of them will start trusting humans. I tend to agree with that because any animal, if they know that somebody is caring for them, mm-hmm. they will eventually warm up. Mm-hmm. If a wild animal can eat seeds out of your hand because they're used to you, mm-hmm. then a feral cat who used to be somebody's cat, <laughs> <laughs> who lives amongst the humans, whether in a house or just in the community, I think they would eventually warm up to somebody who's just the right fit for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of them may not be directly They may not used to have been part of somebody's family, but the generation of. Yeah, they live in areas that humans exist in. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're foreign to them. Right, yeah. You can go into like the jungle and see an animal who's never seen a human before. Right. Feral cats, they know what a human is. Mm -hmm. They just choose not to like them. But yeah, I can see them warming up. If, if it's the right fit and if they really feel safe and secure, they'll warm up. Mm-hmm. Might take a while. Yeah. Unlike the shelters, the rescues will, will often be specific to certain types of animals. So they might focus on cats and dogs or just cats or just dogs. They might just focus on birds or reptiles. Sometimes it'll be focused on specific breeds like greyhounds or pit bulls. Well, pit bulls are not a breed, but, (laughs) or they might focus on specifically senior animals. And there might be other groups in there that I haven't mentioned. Yeah. So honestly, if you say you want a Labrador, guess what? There's probably a Labrador rescue somewhere that you can contact Mm -hmm. instead of going to a breeder and buying one. Yeah. Do your research again, research, research, research. (laughs) I think we say that word every single show. (laughs) But yeah, if you want a very specific breed or a very specific animal, do your research and find a rescue that rescues that particular animal. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed you'll find someone. Now we mentioned that rescues use a network of foster families because of not having the space to house the animals themselves. But there's a lot of benefits to that compared to these animals being in a shelter. I mean, of course, these shelters try to provide the best care they can with what they have, but they've got limited staffing, limited time, and sometimes limited resources. So with using a foster family, these animals are much better able to get individual attention and care. And a lot more can be learned about these animals because they're being interacted with on a daily basis. And They can really learn about the animal's personality, quirks that they might have, behavior challenges that they might have, their likes or dislikes, any health issues that might come up, like all of these different things. They can learn about that. And it's much more difficult to do that in a shelter because of the limited time that they have to spend with these animals. Yeah. And foster families help with the socialization Mm -hmm. of these animals. If these animals are stray and just a sidebar, Stray and feral are completely different. A feral cat does not have a connection to humans. They just know that they exist. A stray may have been someone's pet at some point. Got lost or something. Or got lost. 
So they're very different, but both of them can benefit from being fostered because they learn social skills. Mm -hmm. They learn how to reconnect with our human world. And as well, if the foster family has other animals in the household, then the animal learns how to interact with other animals as well. Yeah. Or we find out that this dog is not good with cats. Right. Or this dog doesn't work with other dogs. Or this dog is a dog that isn't confident enough and gets bullied a lot. Mm -hmm. So knowing all of that information, again, it's just data. And that data goes into how the rescue can help this animal thrive. Mm-hmm. They don't have that information. They can't guarantee that the animal is going to thrive. So more information, the better. Mm-hmm. And since these rescues don't have the space like a shelter does, they usually will create a partnership with one or more veterinarian clinics to provide the same similar kind of care, whether it's the spaying and neutering, any necessary kind of medical treatment, possibly vaccines maybe a microchip, but that's still all reliant on donations. So if they don't get enough donations, these veterinarians, as much as they would like to help, they really can't afford to do these things for free. They've got their own overhead that they have to take care of. Yeah. That's why these rescues needs our support. So if you have the opportunity, reach out and support them. They're doing great work. Mm -hmm. They're doing difficult work and they're doing compassionate work. We need to support them. Mm -hmm. The adoption process for a rescue operation is quite a bit more involved usually and quite a bit longer than with a shelter because they've, I don't know if it's that they've got more invested or if they've got a different view on things, but they really, really want to try to ensure that these animals are going to go to the best home possible. Yeah. So they want to do a lot of background checking and it can sometimes cost a little bit more than when you go to a shelter as well, but it's all for both the animal's benefit as well as the potential new pet parents benefit. It's to try to create the best match possible, you know, and they also These rescues will also try to provide a lot of information and resources and help for you once you have chosen to go ahead with the adoption and it's been approved in that. Now, not everybody is going to like this, but I think it's a a good idea. Once you've chosen to adopt an animal, a lot of rescues will want to do follow-ups because they want to ensure that the animal you've taken into your home is thriving and doing well. And sometimes they may be unscheduled. You know, but when you adopt, if I'm not mistaken, I think when you adopt from a rescue, they have a contract and there is a portion of that contract that says that they can check in on the animal at any point in time. Mm -hmm. If they've done the proper background check, chances are they probably will just check in once or twice until they know and then you're on your own. But it's the only way that they can ensure that the animal is in a good home. There are people out there that'll fake it if they know something is being scheduled. Well, and you know, I'm assuming, I don't know the process, but I'm assuming that the process for adopting a child would be similar, that they also will do checks to make sure Mm -hmm. that the child is doing well. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And we have to remember that these people who are running these rescues, most of them have day jobs. So they're not going to be stuck to a nine to five. (laughs) They may pop in 
at any point, mm -hmm. but also with getting to meet and getting to know the animal and all that stuff, there's going to be a lot of coordination involved. Mm -hmm. So we have to be, like you said, patient mm -hmm. and allow that space. Because if you are truly adopting this animal from this rescue for the reason of you wanting to give this animal a loving home, then most people are accepting of all of this. They will be patient yeah. because they know. Now, like you said, all rescues are not created equal. There are some bad ones out there, but the majority of them are really real. They're doing God's work. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And if you have in the past tried to get an animal from a rescue and found yourself getting frustrated and annoyed and all of those different feelings, then you might have to ask yourself, what is the real reason you want to get this animal? What is the true reason? You never know. They might make the process more difficult because they want to make sure that the person really wants the animal for the right reasons. Yeah. No, but I think the person who's getting frustrated to ask themselves why. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Because if you, if you can't wait, and I don't know how long the process actually takes, but let's say it could maybe take two or three months before you can get to the point of actually bringing the animal into your home. If three months is too long for you, then getting an animal is probably not really the right choice for you in the first place. Agreed. And that may sound harsh, but that's the truth. You wouldn't expect to adopt a child in a week mm -hmm. and you shouldn't expect to adopt an animal in a week. Let it take as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. If you really have the animal's interests at heart, you will wait until the process is fully vetted and that animal comes to you. That's my thought about that. Completely agree. So yes, rescues do have typically stricter requirements than a shelter does. There's a reason for that. There, Yeah, there is a reason. <laughs> They have a really strong understanding of each individual animal's needs, wants, behaviors, and personality. Yeah, and that's probably because they spend more time with the animal. Mm -hmm. And their foster network spends a lot of time with the animal. They're not just sitting in a kennel waiting for somebody to adopt them. They are living with people. They're living with humans. And when they are living normal lives... People get to understand the animal in and out. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges, this is not just focused on rescues anymore. These are any of the facilities that have animals come into their operations, whether it's a physical facility or whether it's through the fostering network, but they all have the potential to deal with animals who have no known history. So they could have past trauma, they could have past medical issues, and it's not always easy to figure out what may have happened. You can kind of only deal with what you see. So as we said, some of these animals could be in a facility or a fostered family for only a very short period of time, which if you don't know the previous history and you're not able to spend a long time with them, then you're not going to be able to learn a whole lot about them. So even if the animal ends up being in a foster family for a couple of weeks, There'll be some information that will be learned about the animal, but it's going to still be pretty limited at that point. Another point towards getting an older animal who's been in rescue for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, obviously, rescues are different than shelters. So there's probably not that many animals that are within their foster family for a really long time because there's a lot of failed foster families out there like me. I cannot foster an animal because they end up becoming my family. I can't give them up. (laughs) I can't give them up. That's how I had 12 cats at one time. You know, kittens and adults, not just all adults, but yeah, I, I had six kittens and I had a bunch of adults. Yeah, I'm a failed foster <laughs> because they end up staying forever. <laughs> right. And I've read a few different stories or watched a few different videos of stories similar yeah. to that. <laughs> but the foster family is like, oh yeah, you know, there's somebody coming to get the animal and then they just start bawling because I'm like, oh, I can't give them up. Yep. <laughs> My fosters lived to be 19 years old, a couple of them. So, and they stayed with me <laughs> since the day they were born. <laughs> if you do go to a rescue and they have an animal who has been with the foster family for a very long time, a long time could be like a year with a rescue, let's be honest. But those animals may be a good choice because there's more known about those animals. They've lived with those animals Mm. for an extended period of time. They know the animal's personality. They know their quirks. They know the behavior. And they may have worked out some of the behavior challenges. And so those those animals don't have those behavior challenges anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good point that you brought up there, that being in in a foster family, there's the opportunity for the foster family to work with the animal if they have any kind of challenges that come up, that's not as much of an option in a shelter. Yeah. So if you choose to get an animal from a rescue that has been with a foster for a while, you're less likely to adopt an animal who's got potentially a lot of issues. And I'm going to say it because we like to remind you guys this. There is never an issue that can't be worked with. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of whether you're willing to. Exactly. Because most of those behavior challenges are caused by us or another human at some point in that animal's life. They don't come with issues. They're not born with behavior issues. They learn behavior issues and they learn those behavior issues for the most part from us. Mm -hmm. Just a reminder as well, animals have their own natural behaviors. So you really need to avoid confusing those with being a problem issue. Yes. And learning to work with those. Every animal can be trained. Every animal can be worked with. These animals don't want to have behavior problems. Most of those are caused by stress. If you give an animal a stress-free environment and patience and work with them, most of them will probably outgrow that behavior challenge because they know they're safe, they're secure. And they don't have a problem with stress. Mm -hmm. So another difference with shelters and rescues, they both have adoption fees, but I think we mentioned it a little bit earlier. The rescue fees can be higher, but they, again, don't have the funding that the shelters most likely have. So they need to cover the costs that they incur to take care of these animals. Maybe some of them will only encourage, but some of them are going to require that the animal you adopt be spayed or neutered. And I'm not sure if that's something that they 
would end up doing ahead of time. Yeah, I don't know if any rescues that will adopt an intact animal. Yeah. I think they're probably very much like the shelters there. They're going to require, even if it's a kitten, they'll require the animal to be fixed. Right. I'm just not sure if they would do it ahead of time before the animal finds a family or potential family, or if it's more of part of the contract. It's like, okay, if you adopt this family, you have to take it to this vet or one of the networking vets they work with and get this done. I'm thinking that it's probably the first on their mind. Mm. I don't think you're going to wait. If an animal's intact, they're not going to wait to get that animal fixed until somebody wants it. Mm -hmm. But again, it will probably be highly dependent on the donations received, the the budget they have for that. Honestly, because they are so big on population control and on a local level, Mm -hmm. I doubt very seriously they'll even offer an animal for adoption without it being fixed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got to control it in their own foster families too. Right. So foster family is just another house. And if something is, if a dog or cat is intact and they get out, they're making a population issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably 99.9% sure that population control is top of the list Mm -hmm. of every rescue that I know of and that I can even think. Mm -hmm. But any vet fees that could be incurred after that, I guess... Probably to a certain extent, it wouldn't be for the rest of the animal's life, but for, you know, probably getting the health check and, and all those different things, then the, the partnership that the rescues have with these vet clinics can offer you a discount. Yeah. I was fostering a uh, cat that we had out here. We called her precious Jamie. She was so cute and so sweet. She, unfortunately we had to keep her in the basement because I had like five cats at the time, but Mm. we, uh, used a vet and I didn't have to pay to, cause I was fostering her. I wasn't adopting her. I was fostering her. The rescue paid the discounted fee to get her checked out, to make sure she was okay and to get her fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I believe that is the way that they typically operate, that the fosters do not have to spend the money for the food and the supplies and the vet care that is needed to care for the animal they're fostering. But I'm sure they would probably accept it if the foster family wanted to give it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Like a donation. (laughs) Sure, I'll I'll take care of the food. My mom had a whole bunch of stray cats, feral cats that lived in her backyard and she was basically managing a colony, which at its highest was about 30 cats. And after several years, it was down to three. Everybody was getting fixed. Everybody's taken care of. And the rescue organization and the animal control and care facility was actually paying for litter and food. Mm. So they would drop off a big bag of litter once a month. They would drop off a big bag of food because they were colonies, they were outdoor cats, they weren't indoor cats. So they worked with my mother to help feed and offer things like litter supplies. And so my mom never had to pay for that. She didn't have to pay for rabies vaccines. She didn't have to pay for any of that. Right. She just managed the colony and the rescue worked with her and did all that for her. Mm -hmm. So I think it all depends on the region depends on the community, depends on the actual rescue or the facility, whether it's a shelter, whether it's an animal care and control facility that's helping, they probably all have their different 
protocols and procedures, Mm -hmm. depending on what they can and cannot do in their area. Right. So after hearing everything we talked about, and if you're still feeling some uncertainty about whether you should adopt from a shelter, whether you should adopt from a rescue, the key thing is that you want to learn about each operation's processes, procedures, and requirements. Because what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another person. You want to feel in alignment with how the operation works. Agreed. So some of the other things to consider before adopting from a specific location is think about what is the responsiveness, the atmosphere of the location, and what kind of welcome do they give you? Do they treat you kind of like a number or do they treat you like a person and want to work with you as much as possible and treat you with respect? And treat the animal respect. That too, yes. Although that's not something you might be able to find out as easily. True. But you can always tell somebody's demeanor. Yeah. And see. And then there's always word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Ask around. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I wanted to mention is we mentioned that when you work with a rescue, it could be a longer process. Mm-hmm. So when we say responsiveness, that does not mean, oh, it took her more than 24 hours to get in touch with us. You know, give it time. Mm-hmm. And when they do respond, are they all about the animal? Are they all about getting this animal to a safe home? Mm-hmm. So just remember that shelters and rescues are different So a rescue is going to take a little bit longer than a shelter and you need to, you know, act accordingly Mm -hmm. and don't expect somebody to jump when you say jump because they may not be able to. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it takes them a month or something to get back to you, that might be a problem. Yeah, you probably, yeah. (laughs) They obviously are not as keen on finding a home for these animals. You know, it could take maybe a few days, depending on what their schedule is. And I'm sure that, you know, and who knows how many emails or messages or whatever that they receive on a daily basis that they have to respond to. So it could potentially take a few days for them to get back to you. And the other thing, you know, when it comes to the respect part, how willing are they to answer your questions? If you ask about the animal, are they short? Or do they give you a detailed explanation? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be cold and disconnected with you and not give you any of the information about that particular animal? Because there may be something, there may be a reason why they're not saying, oh, this cat is wonderful. Or, oh, well, uh, like, uh, well, uh, it, they'll be fine. You know, like they talk like that. Right. <laughs> you might want to question that. <laughs> Because they're might they're they're probably not wanting to tell you something. Right. They should be forthcoming and you know, be willing to be give you more information when than what you're asking for. Exactly. Do they have any interest in finding out about you? Now, this is not about like digging into your personal life, but it's just like there are certain things that they need to find out to make sure that this is going to be a good match. So they want to know things like your lifestyle. How many hours are you working in a day? And are you working five days a week? And do you live by yourself? Is there anybody else who can help provide care? And they might also, I'm not sure how they would look into this or not, but they might want to somehow find a little bit about your financial situation. I'm not 
you know, I can understand that they would want to do that in order to find out whether you are going to financially be able to take care of the animal, but that might be a tricky and touchy area to sort of look into. Yeah, that might be dependent on the rescue. Yeah. But if somebody was all about making sure that I could afford the animal, then right there and then I would know that they cared about the animal. Mm -hmm. So don't question that and don't get insulted if somebody's asking you about your financial status because animals are expensive. If they're asking you a, a question that is considered personal and you don't understand why they're asking, ask them. Why do you want to know this? If it's a legitimate question and it has to do with ensuring that the animal is going to get the care that it deserves, they'll let you know that. They'll help you to understand. Yep. So just be polite and ask them and don't jump all over them because they're asking a certain question. Are they willing to offer you help before, during, and after the adoption? So if you have any questions that you're not sure about, or you want to find out more about the animal or find out about the process or whatever the case might be, are they forthright? Are they willing to answer any questions that you have? That's a good one because you're always going to have questions, especially if they don't respond to those questions after you adopt them then I would question the rescue organization. Why are you not wanting to look into how this animal is adapting mm -hmm. and adjusting to its? Yeah, because <laughs> obviously things can come up after an adoption and maybe it's not something that you were expecting or you maybe you're not sure how to deal with. They should be able to, to help you with that. Even if they don't have the answer themselves, they could probably point you towards a resource to help you with that. Yeah. Now, the key thing is, is that if there's a, con well, there should be a contractor agreement to sign before the official commitment. If you're not allowed to read and review it beforehand, that's a red flag. Yeah. Major red flag. Major. And I know some of these contracting agreements can be quite long in some cases. And I'm not a fast reader, so it can sometimes take me a couple of hours to, <laughs> to read through the whole thing. I'm the same way. <laughs> so, you know, they should be able to give you a copy that you could take home and read. Yeah. And if they don't offer you a contract, if there's no contract involved, sketchy. Yes. A little bit suspicious. Just saying. You should be signing a contract when you adopt an animal mm -hmm. from anywhere. The last thing to consider, and may, it's, there's probably other things that could also be considered, but these are kind of the main key ones. Can they provide proof of the medical care that they provided? If the animal was spayed or neutered, will they provide you with a certificate? The certificate of, for the vaccines or any other medical care that was provided? Because if you are taking this animal into your home, you should be getting access to their health records for that so that you know exactly what's been done and what hasn't and what the history is in terms of their medical care. Yeah. Or at least the name of the vet. So the vet that you've chosen can contact that vet and with your permission, release that records mm -hmm. and put it into the new vet's files. Because every animal, just like our medical history should follow us no matter where we are, an animal's medical history should follow it wherever it goes. But I think some of this should be able to be seen before the commitment, because if the organization is saying, yeah, the animal was spayed or neutered, and you just believe them, and so then you don't get the procedure done, and then you find out, oh, no, that wasn't actually done. 
Oh yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah. They, you need to know what's been done. Yeah. But even if they don't want to be forthcoming, then you ask the question, well, can I get the veterinary clinics number so I can contact the vet and have the records transferred? Mm -hmm. They may be juggling 20 different animals and they may not off the top of their head. Mm -hmm. No, but they should be willing to give you that information. I think that's the key part. They need to be willing. Right. Again, that medical information should follow the animal. Mm -hmm. They should be willing to give you any information about the animal that you want to know about. Yeah. And if there's a rescue that you find that is a little bit too sketchy for their own good, there's nothing wrong with reporting them. Granted, 99% of all the rescues out there are doing it for the right reasons. Right. But there's going to be some bad apples out there. And if you find a bad apple, you know, and if you can just rescue that animal from the rescue (laughs) and report the rescue, Mm -hmm. you know, but know that the majority of the rescues that are around are working with good intent, with compassion, and they're trying to do God's work and trying to help these animals and this planet. So don't jump on the bandwagon like, oh, well, I'm going to report you. No, if it's a legit suspicious activity, report them. But the majority (laughs) of them are doing God's work. So support them as best you can. So hopefully all of that gave you a lot of things to muddle around in your little brain up there. And I don't know, gave you permission to reach out. See if you can support your shelters and your rescues in your area. Mm -hmm. Find out more about them. And if you've adopted an animal from a a rescue or a shelter and you've given them a forever home, share your stories with us. We'd love to hear them. Yes. You can share them on Facebook. You can share them on Twitter. You can share them in our email. We got lots of ways. We have a Facebook group, the Animal Files community. We have a Facebook page, the Animal Files official, our Twitter is simply the animal files our email is the animal files podcast at gmail.com did i cover it all sounds like it (laughs) yes we also have a patreon too if you join the facebook group you can get that information automatically it's also on our facebook page as well pinned to the top so you can access the link from there There you go support independent radio support the animals help us bring more of this incredible information to the world and with that we hope you have a wonderful afternoon bye for now thanks for listening to today's episode if you enjoyed the show please be sure to rate review and recommend the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you want some more great info be sure to check out www.theanimalfilespodcast.com